You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm very pleased to have as my guest this week Chuck Palahniuk, the novelist who is known for Lullaby and Choke and many others, most famously of course Fight Club, which was made into a famous film. Now Chuck, the occasion of our speaking to you is not a new book, but a new way of publishing. As I understand it, you're going to publish your next book via Substack. Now, for those of our listeners who aren't super tech aficionados, can you explain what that means? So Substack is more or less a platform that allows people to put together and uh, post uh, newsletters. And a lot of newsletters are moving to Substack. Uh, It's a subscription service. People either subscribe for free content or they pay uh, typically between $40 and $60 for an annual subscription where they get extra content. Uh, I'm going to be posting at least twice a week free content, which is more or less based on the lectures I give to my writing classes. So if you're never going to come to Portland, Oregon, you're, you can still kind of get the class for free online. And if you want to get the serialized novel and a lot of short fiction and a lot of extras, then you pay $40 for the year. That's more or less it. Uh, in a way, it's, it's like having my own literary magazine where I can offer my best students a place to be published. And eventually I could be using their short fiction as, ex- as teaching examples to kind of illustrate the different things that I teach in minimalism. Now, you're a writer who, you know, a quick Google tells me you've sold upwards of five million books. Somebody who's done pretty well out of traditional publishing. So what is it that's made you want to move to Substack or made you think of it? I, I was curious to do a serialized novel. Uh, I've done comics in the past, and when you do a graphic novel, you typically bring out single-issue comics the year before. And the single-issue comics, they really go to the hardcore people who buy their comics at comic stores and are the collectors. And the single issues are, are like a serialized novel where you get a small portion every month. And I kind of like that model. And so Substack is allowing this kind of serialized single-issue distribution so similar to comics. And then eventually, you know, the entire novel is, is there to be read. And that will sort of throw back a bit to the 19th century and early 20th century ways of publishing. Is that, is that something that's in your mind? Yeah, very much so, because it, it really harkens back to Collier's and Scribner's and Saturday Evening Post and Look and the way that so many novelists like Dickens serialized their work. And people loved it. And, and also the way that movies were serialized and radio shows were serialized. And so in a way, it is a kind of throwback to the more mass market circulation magazines. The example that obviously pops into my mind and probably will pop into yours is of an experiment Stephen King, who's a comparably successful author, tried, I think, he tried to serialise a novel online, I think it was 10 or 15 years ago, and he kind of ran into the mud. I mean, is that a sort of something you think will be different this time? Do you think technology's caught up or do you think Steve just didn't quite have the chops to do it? If I remember right, that was uh, Racing the Bullet or something like that. And I think, I think it was and, called something like that, yeah. And it, it had, 
he had the entire thing up and it was supposed to come out uh, subscription and people hacked it very quickly. So they very quickly got the entire product for little or no payment. And that's where it broke down. And I think the technology is such at this point that with the novel only presented a, a week at a time, that every week you get a portion, it's never really fully there for someone to hack in and get the entire thing. So I just trust the technology has advanced to the point where, you know, the, the same mistake is not going to be made. People like Byliner and Substack who serialize novels have a lot of money invested in it, a lot more than I do. So I just trust that they've got the protections in place that they're not going to run afoul of that same that same problem. Yeah. Now, are you going to do in this book what you know the the, the writers of the pulps in the twentieth century did, which is sort of not really know where you're going, you know, and leave cliffhangers, write it as it comes out, or are you going to be writing in advance? Oh, I wish I had that kind of nerve. No, the entire thing is done. It uh, <laughs> it was actually done, and I had sold it to my traditional publisher, Hachette, and they kindly let me take it back to serialize it, as long as I kind of promised them the next baby. So they get the next book, and I'm taking this completed novel and uh, serializing it. And are you going to publish it? with a traditional publisher when the serial is done? Uh, uh, Hachette has asked for right of first refusal to do that. So they would be the first people I would go to. Yeah, that's very much a possibility. There's a, a publishing consultant named Jane Friedman, and she did a recent substack where she said that the success of serialized novels is half in the serialized portion, in serialized form, but then the other half of the success is subsequently coming out as a, a novel novel. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Did you, when you were writing this, have in mind it would be serialized? I did you kind of have mental breaks like right, this is the this is the turn that will keep people going on? I mean, you know, was it written if essentially with those cliffhangery bits or whatever the technical term you'd use is? I did not. But traditionally, I've always written with that incomplete energy at the end of the chapter so that the, the momentum carries forward and uh, as much of the tension is held in suspension until the end when it can all be completed very quickly. So writing comics especially, you have what you call the page turn reveal, where theoretically people see both pages at once. And the only place you can surprise the reader is when they turn the page. So you always want to have a setup at the bottom right-hand corner so that as they turn the page, there's a payoff in the upper left-hand corner. And so writing comics, you're, you're doing a cliffhanger every two pages. And after you've done that for 300 pages, you are so good at plotting that writing a serialized novel is nothing compared to the stress of writing a page reveal every two pages for 300 pages. Let's see, how, how much... I mean, you, you've clearly learned from comics writing for the purposes of prose writing. I, know, I remember talking to Grant Morrison, the comics writer, and him saying lots of novelists struggle writing comics when they first move in because they, they put too many words on the page and so on. Did you? Was it a big learning curve to figure out how to do comics for you? It wasn't, and maybe because I had very good teachers. I had uh, some of the top people in comics live in Portland, and I could go to them, and they would talk me through not having big speeches. And also the form of writing I do, the minimalist writing I do, 
is so often based on physical actions and dialogue is held as a kind of superfluous thing that in minimalism, you're never allowed to further plot through dialogue. So dialogue is always just a way to kind of color character and reveal character through, you know, incorrect language. And so dialogue is always very low priority in minimalism. And I think that helped me writing comics. Can you tell us a bit about this new, this new book without giving too much away? I, I'm 59 years old and I've kind of forgotten, but I don't want to forget the fantastic terror that it was to be a teenager or a person in my young 20s when the world is really expecting you to accomplish so much in such a small period of time. You have to you know, complete your education. You have to establish a household. You have to ideally find a partner. Uh, you have to start a family. You have to start a career. There's so many things that are expected of you in just a very small window of time. And it's absolutely terrifying, the idea that if you fail at any one of these tasks, you kind of fail at life. So the pressure that people feel at that age, I'm not surprised that that pressure drives them to do drugs and to drink. And so Greener Pastures is really about a kid in high school who is in the middle of a suicide cluster, the very brightest kids in his high school. Several of them have killed themselves. And it's gradually revealed in the first part of the book that they've actually been recruited by a headhunting firm online called Greener Pastures that allows really bright kids that have been tracked their entire lives to auction themselves to fantastically wealthy people who need successors. So someone like uh, Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, who kind of wants their own mini-me, their own successor, will go online and bid for a fantastically bright kid. And that kid has to choose in secrecy uh, whether he or she is going to leave his family and never see them again, leave everyone that they love and leave their own dream, what they hope to do with their future in exchange for the complete security and status of becoming the next Elon Musk or the next Zuckerberg or the next Soros. They have this guaranteed complete security and safety and status, but they won't have their passion and they won't have their family. And so these kids have to make this decision in secrecy. They can't tell their families. And, uh, and they're kind of tested. And, and that's really just the smallest portion of the book because we gradually find out more and more dark things about greener pastures. It's a slight Charlie and the Chocolate Factory vibe about it. I know. You know, that's the dark side of the Chocolate Factory is that, yeah, you get to be the next uh, Willy Wonka. But, damn, you're stuck being the next Willy Wonka. Ah, uh, that's a two-edged sword. You know, you say that, that dark things are revealed, and one of your, you know, the things for which you're best known is that, you know, your work goes to quite dark places. I can't think of another writer who's been so proud of having people pass out at their readings and be sick and so forth. I mean, do you think that going online, that the sort of sub substack thing is a way of, of being freer to produce material that, that mainstream publishers will... I think that that's a big part of it. This is complete license to put anything on the page that I want to uh, and not be held back and not be kind of curbed by the timidity of the editor. And uh, that's very appealing. Have you in the past been curbed by the timidity of the editor? It doesn't, doesn't seem so to read you. I, I have. You know, most of my books, 
I had a title in mind and I, I didn't get the title that I wanted. And when you can't even, you know, name your own book, that's kind of, you know, indicative of, of how little control you ultimately get. But I have been dialed back quite a bit. Can you tell me what those, what those titles we missed were? I originally had wanted two word kind of oxymoronic titles. So Fight Club was two words that in, in themselves fought. One was fraternity and the other one was conflict. Uh, Invisible Monsters was, uh, you know, if something is a monster, it's kind of defined by its appearance. But if it's invisible, that kind of negates the idea of it being a monster. Uh, my third book was supposed to be uh, called Unnatural Disasters. Uh, and it got renamed as Survivor. My book Diary was supposed to be uh, Period Revival. And it got remade as Diary. And so, you know, I probably didn't get to name most of my books. I can blame Irving Welsh because uh, he did so well with single word titles that that seemed to be a kind of a, a branding tool that people wanted to apply to my books as well. Right. Well, you know, publishers sometimes sometimes get it right. I certainly any titles I've proposed for my own books have always been instantly overwritten and successfully by the publishers. But is there, I mean, we read a lot and there seems to be a, a widespread sense abroad that publishing as a whole is becoming more timid, that so-called cancel culture is something that publishers are in running in terror of. I'm wondering if you have a view on that. Do you get the sense that, that we're somewhere different than we were, say, 15 years ago? You know, I, I really thought it changed with 9-11 at least in terms of what I did, you could no longer publish transgressive fiction because suddenly any kind of transgressive political act was seen as terrorism. And so after that, I thought that people had to sort of switch to more genre fiction like horror uh, in the way that they did in the 50s and the 60s. So if you wanted to talk about a political issue, you had to create a metaphor that allowed people to be with the political issue and not be sort of shut down by the all of the negative, incomplete negative energy around it. Also allow them a kind of a cathartic way to be with the thing that couldn't be talked about openly. And I can illustrate this, but I don't want to go on too long. Try and illustrate it in a capsule way, if you can. I'd be, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. My favorite example is, uh, is Rosemary's Baby. I thought Ira Levin was always brilliant at finding a metaphor that allowed people to look at something that is too tragic and too frightening to look at literally. And Rosemary's Baby, while I knew Levin and he wouldn't admit it, I really do think it was a novel that was about thalidomide, the, the sedative that caused the deformation of so many babies during that period of history. And that people did not want to read a, fictionalized, a fictional novel about the, the sad birth defects. And so by having giving birth to this baby and having people point out in the book and in the movie, people say openly say, look at his hands, look at his feet. And the hands and feet are described as these kind of pincer-like claws. I really do think that, that Levin was writing a cathartic novel about the kind of unexpressed horror that people felt about the, this horrible series of birth defects. And he, and he could never openly say that because then he would be branded as exploiting the situation, exploiting the tragedy. Talk about your own work in the context of this change in the weather after 9-11. Are you conscious of having retrenched or changed direction or responded 
to that change in the climate in the way your fiction was produced? Very much so. Right after 9-11, I started writing books that were much more like a traditional horror books. And I don't think that's a bad idea because I just don't want to be stuck writing branded transgressive fiction over and over. And I grew up loving horror. And so it just seemed like a natural, comfortable switch to go to something that was a little more hidden. What was the horror you you grew up reading? I mean, just because I, I grew up reading horror too. And absolutely, there was always a sense that it was somehow definitely down the table. You know, you, was, you weren't to be proud of being squirreled away in a James Herbert book. Ah, oh, during the 70s, there's a fantastic book by uh, Grady Hendrix called uh, Paperbacks from Hell. And it's about the, the huge surge in horror paperback fiction in the 60s and 70s and 80s and how it started with the occult and started with Rosemary's Baby. And then it moved through all these other sort of demonic possession books like The Exorcist and The Omen. And then it gradually moved into sort of scientific horror. Do you remember the Prometheus syndrome, the Prometheus bug, about these cockroaches that came up from a oil well or a, a coal mine? And they could rub their legs together and they would cause fires in everyone's homes. And you had that kind of ecological horror that was also linked to Willard and Ben, which were about demonic rats that attacked people and ate them alive. And you had uh, It's Alive, which again is a 1970s book about a woman who's pregnant, has been exposed to so many household chemicals that she gives birth to this demonic baby that kills everyone in the delivery room and then crawls into the sewer and periodically comes out of the sewer and kills people. So the 70s were a terrific time. You had such a selection of horror if you were a, a kid. And then into the 80s, there was you know a whole new brand of horror. Do you think the, the sort of idea, you know, as I was saying, kind of horror, enormously kind of potent, way of tapping into social anxieties and very attractive to teenagers. Do you think that that kind of genre material is less stigmatised nowadays, that you've got a lot of sort of literary writers in which I'd include yourself saying, actually, we're interested in genre. You know, people like Michael Shaban and Jonathan Lethem, you know, who are all saying, Naomi Alderman, um, you know, sort of Margaret Atwood even, who are saying, actually, SF horror, fantasy are all, they're really where the heart of storytelling is. They're not some sort of thing for kids. I think that there's more to it than that. I think that, uh, that a lot of these writers have recognized that the idea of writing the great social commentary novel, the great remembrance of things past, the great Gatsby, that there's kind of a dead end. Because even if you do do that thing, if you write infinite jest, everything after that you're going to get kind of crucified for. And so I really do think that David Foster Wallace would still be alive if someone had said, will you write 14 issues of Spider-Man? So that you're not always stuck having to write the immensely profound thing that is going to shock everyone to a new reality every single time. Uh, you burn out so quickly doing that, and there's no fun in that. So just as a kind of sorbet, going to genre, going to comics, is just a lot of fun, and it puts you back in touch with why you love to write. Do you ever think yourself, like, the way I'm really going to shock my readers now is to write a 200-page realist novel in which, you know, 
nothing unusual happens at all, but just do a straight literary novel. Oh, you, that was so damning. Oh my gosh, you described all the fiction that I hate. No, why should I waste my life? I wouldn't want to read that book. And so I certainly want to write, wouldn't want to write that book. Yeah, I hope I am never that heavily medicated. Do you think the writing for Substack is, you know, finding this new way of putting your material out there is going to produce a different audience? Do you think, do you think the, the serial audience is going to be, have different expectations or interests than the audience you're going to get for the hardcover that's published at the end of it? I really can't say. My goal has always been to write the book that someone wants to read the entire book in one sitting on the airplane flight. And so I want them to, to read it three, in three or four hours and have it done. And so this idea that they, the book is being eked out over an entire year, I think might be a little frustrating for some of my readers, but it's going to be supplemented by so many short stories and by so many essays and so many anecdotes about tour and anecdotes about the backstory of, of how different books of mine or different stories of mine were inspired by people and real world events, that it's going to be like this enormous annotated thing. And I think that might satisfy people's, you know, demand for something between all the episodes. So I don't think people, I think there'll be enough sort of interstitial stuff in between that people won't feel too anxious about not getting the entire novel at once. Do you feel as a sort of, you know, this way of engaging with your readers, having that kind of direct relationship, I mean, is that sort of liberating or kind of scary? Because, you know, traditional publishing was always like, you write the book, you send it off, and then, you know, maybe you answer some post, or maybe you choose to be pinched and, and you know, <laughs> vanish and just let the, the work be the thing. For me, you leave out a giant portion of the job, and that is going on the road and promoting the work and interacting with hundreds or thousands of people every day in a different city and hearing their stories and coming back from that tour ready to go back into isolation, but with an enormous number of new, fresh ideas given to you by total strangers. And so that prom promoting portion became a big part of the creative portion. But with a lockdown, I can't do that. And so my creative process is kind of interrupted by lockdown. And Substack is going to give me much more of an interaction than I've had uh, for the past year and a half. And that alone is, is going to be worth it. Just that being able to socialize with people and reconnect with people that I might see every year or every other year in certain cities. It's kind of rebuilding my life. Do you think that you're going to continue to publish serial novels and will you i mean obviously this is one where you went actually i'll publish this as a serial but you'd already written it i mean do you see yourself starting to write novels for serial publication huh that's hard to say i really have grown to really love doing the public events and making them into a big show and and really because when i ask who here has been to an author's event there'll be a, a sea of people and almost everyone will be someone who's never been to a reading. And I want to make sure that those people have, as their first author reading, something fantastic. So there's always stunts and there's always games and there's always a, a really physical thing happening and in a very upsetting story, a story that makes people faint or makes people weep. And I think that I will miss that 
if I go to just a kind of long distance serialized publishing, I think, you know, maybe I'll alternate a traditional book with a serialized book. I could see doing that. Why do you think people do love that, do love horror, do love having a physical reaction, often one of, of disgust and, and fright to literature? For me, it goes back to uh, camping stories or stories by the fireplace where people would tell you these just out loud, frightening stories. And if they could do it well, then they filled you with so much uh, tension. Or even just telling jokes, which is another form of oral storytelling, that we really want that, uh, that kind of live storytelling experience. And we want to experience it with other people. Well, long may it continue. Um, Chuck Polaniak, thank you very much indeed for your time. And I'll look forward to reading your new novel, Bit by Bit on Substack. Drop by drop. Thank you. listening to the spectators books podcast I very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you